You are listening to a sermon podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. So early in the season of Lent, uh, an order for palm branches was placed at Stephen Chu's church goods store on William Avenue, as we always do at that time of the year. Palms to be used by All Saints in the morning, and then by St. Ben's both at our 4 p.m. and our 7 p.m. liturgies in the evening. And then this phone call came, oh, a little over two weeks ago, that that unexpected cold snap in California where there was snow in the Hollywood Hills, well, that wiped out the supply of palms. Didn't kill the plants, but it frostbit all of the fronds. So all the orders were being canceled. Now, there was some scrambling in the All Saints Church office. And ultimately, the administrative assistants did find a church goods store in Toronto that had palms from another source. Just enough to make about 50 palm crosses for each of the two congregations. So if you came in the main door, and Rob and Kristen may have suggested that you limit one to a family, uh, that's why. And if you came in that door and didn't get your palm cross yet, make sure you do at the end of the evening. It's a good symbol to take home, find a home for it, and just let it be for the year. And it'll slowly dry out, but it'll always be that piece of the story. And then we collect those crosses back next year for Ash Wednesday. And they're burnt to create the ashes. So it's a kind of an interesting full cycle you can do at home. And it's really good that we could get those palms. Really good. It's a touchstone and a marker that we're beginning, just beginning tonight to make our way into Holy Week. Interestingly, though, in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, people who live in areas without palms, areas like, say, oh, Ukraine or Winnipeg, they use pussy willow branches in their celebrations of this event that's very common in Ukrainian churches here in Winnipeg. And here's a fascinating little observation. As that gospel was being read at the beginning of the liturgy, the very the first one, did you hear any mention of palms? Any at all? Nope. In fact, what Matthew says is that many spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Doesn't say palm branches. Similarly, Mark references leafy branches, while Luke writes only of the cloaks put on the road, no mention of any plant whatsoever. Only in John's account is it specified that they are palm branches. They took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna. So why do you suppose John specifies palm branches? In all likelihood, it's because some 200 years earlier, in an uprising led by Judas Maccabeus, there was a surprising defeat in Jerusalem. 
and they managed to oust the occupying army of Antiochus. And they marched into Jerusalem to reclaim that city for Judaism. And as they did, according to the second book of Maccabees, they carried ivy-wreathed wands and beautiful branches and fronds of palm. So it could be that John, always the most poetic and the most symbolic of the Gospels, identifies palms as a way to connect that story with Jesus back to the one with the Maccabees. And just why, why would John do that? Why would he bother putting that emphasis on palms and perhaps that link to the Maccabees? Well, the Maccabean rebels were reclaiming Jerusalem and its temple from an enemy occupation, and they were doing so by force. It was a revolutionary uprising, one still commemorated in Judaism by the eight-day festival of Hanukkah. Jesus, on the other hand, represents an altogether different sort of revolution. He does not wield a sword, nor does he seek to defeat the Roman occupying forces and establish a new government in Jerusalem. To wave palm branches and sing Hosanna, which means save us, was to hope that Jesus would be like Judas Maccabeus. But he isn't. Not at all. This is how Stanley Hauerwas describes it in his commentary on Matthew. He says, Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem is an unmistakable political act. He has come to be acknowledged as king. He is the son of David, the one long expected to free Jerusalem from foreign domination. Yet this king, Jesus, triumphs not through violent revolt, but by being for Israel the one able to show it that its worship of God is its freedom. He is Israel's long-expected priestly king, whom the prophets said would come. Jesus' entry into Jerusalem is, therefore, rightly celebrated by those who are not in power. Those who held power in that city are less enamored by Jesus. And in almost no time, they will be colluding with Judas Iscariot to entrap him. Meanwhile, even those who have sung their hosannas and placed their hope in Jesus as a new revolutionary king are about to face a deep disappointment. This, of course, includes Peter, the other disciples, who will follow him so closely through those days in Jerusalem and find themselves sitting with him in the upper room, celebrating a Passover meal unlike anything they had ever before experienced. Breaking the Passover bread and giving it to them his words were striking and strange. My body, my very self, here it is. And then the Passover cup with even harder words. My blood, my life, my death, all for you so that your sins can be forgiven. Here it is. 
Those are Bishop N.T. Wright's interpretive words on the sharing of that bread and wine to which he then describes how it is received. He writes, look around the room in your mind's eye and see the reaction. Peter, furious that Jesus is still talking about dying and on such a special evening as well. Thomas, giving a little shake of the head, he's not understood more than a third of what has gone before and he doesn't understand this at all. John, looking up in astonishment in a mixture of love and fear. Judas, frozen in place, wondering how much Jesus knows and how much he's guessed. The disciples, in other words, completely miss the point, and not for the first time. The gospel accounts show this focused, solid, challenging, compelling teacher surrounded by followers who have their own sense of what his ministry must be all about, should be all about, couldn't possibly be anything else. It must be about the defeat of the Romans. It must be about establishing a new kingship here in Jerusalem. It must have seats for us on his right and left-hand side. As the musician Nick Cave commented, even his disciples, who one would hope would absorb some of Christ's brilliance, seem to be in a perpetual fog of misunderstanding, following Christ from scene to scene with little or no comprehension of what is going on. Even after that extraordinary Passover meal, in which Jesus had taken the very, very familiar symbols of bread and wine, spun them on their heads, they still can't see what he's pointing toward. In Matthew's telling, after they had finished that strange meal, they sung a hymn, quite probably a psalm, and then went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, you will all become deserters because of me this night. And it seems that finally something has dawned in Peter's mind. Oh, this is a critical and dangerous night. It's going to push us right to the breaking point. And then with that boldness typical of Simon, Peter, he turns to Jesus and he says, Though all become deserters because of you, I will never desert you. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even though I must die with you, I will not deny you. And so said all the other disciples, bold as brass they are, without any comprehension at all of what is to follow. Even though I must die with you, Peter says, I will not deny you. But the reader knows that Peter is just blowing smoke. He thinks he's that brave. He imagines he will stand firm as a rock, right beside his teacher, his mentor, his leader. After all, Jesus had nicknamed him Cephas the Rock. 
as do all the disciples. No, no, we'll never abandon you. Rabbi Jesus, no, don't say that. No, we're faithful, we're strong, right to the end. Until they do. That's part of the sorrow that characterizes the story as it moves forward. Every good intention to stay awake while he prays in Gethsemane, every bold promise to accompany him right to the end, whatever that end might be, evaporates. The deep human pathos of the passion story tells us not only of how they stumbled, but also that we too stumble. The great promise of the story that follows in a week, in a week from tonight, is that even in our stumbling, even in our hardest falls, we can again be lifted up, dusted off, and set on the road to try yet again. But that's getting a week ahead of ourselves. We've got some harder stories to tell. It's on the back of the or the last, second last page of the, um, the order of service tonight, there's the full schedule for the week. And a hope that pieces of it will catch your imagination. And then particularly on Good Friday, you can come back. Because the story that day has got a, a rawness and a poignancy and an importance to it that we can't avoid, even though we know the Easter story. We still need to tell the hard part. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. This has been a sermon podcast from St. Benedict's Table. For information on our church and to access the full catalog of our podcasts going all the way back to 2006, visit us online at stbenedictstable.ca. In addition, if you are interested in supporting our online work, you can find information on the website using the Donate button located on the top right-hand corner. Thanks for listening.